Our sermon text is from Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Thank you, orchestra, music team. Good singing, church. Man, Martin Luther would have been proud. He's got some great quotes about singing. I wish I'd have brought them today, but I'll, I'll give you those next another time. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What a passage. What a passage. Let's pray together. Speak to us this morning, Lord, and build your church that you might receive glory. Sola Deo Gloria, to you alone be glory. Thank you for this day. Thank you for gathering us calling us to this place to, to worship you. And thank you for calling us before the foundation of the world that we might glorify you with our lives. We bless your name. Now, Father, grant us understanding Wash us in your word. Make us more like Jesus. For our good and your glory alone. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, as you know, uh, by now, hopefully, today is Reformation Day, the actual day. Uh, about every, I guess, four or five years, it falls on Sunday. So um, depending on when leap year pops in, I, I, I'm not, I never have figured that out exactly. But uh, uh, about every five years or so, it falls on Sunday, and that really just makes it a double blessing because we get to celebrate the day on the day we gather to worship. And this is a huge historical day for Protestant Christians. Sadly, very sadly, many in America uh, do not realize that or acknowledge it or even know about it. Uh, At RCC, we are trying, striving with God's help uh, to reverse that trend by keeping this huge event in church history consistently before us and before our children. Uh, It's one of the reasons we had our Reformation celebration last Wednesday night. What a great time. What a great time of fellowship uh, that was. And in the days we are living in, I am very, very thankful. I don't know about you, but I'm very, very thankful to be a believer in the Reformed tradition. I'm thankful for the impregnable fortress that is the doctrine of, so- of the sovereignty of God in all things, in all things, because it sure looks like things around us are going to hell in a handbasket, strife between races, when there's really only one race, the human race, the plague of wokeness. Battles and arguments over gender. I thought we were supposed to follow the science. The Democrat Party's deepening love affair with killing babies in the womb. The chaos continues to get more chaotic. Now, I don't know if you're a Babylon Bee reader. I am. I've I've signed up for their daily email. I love their headlines. A recent headline was this, nation divided over which handbasket to go to hell in. (laughs) But as a Reformed believer, we know things are not spinning out of control. We know that God reigns in the heavens and on the earth. We know that he has not left his throne And his plan is right on schedule. As Psalm 110 verse 2 states, Jesus rules in the midst of his enemies. And his enemies are abounding today. And they come in many forms and with many targets. From unborn babies to biblical marriage to the nuclear family, etc., etc., Pretty much any and all biblical standard is under attack. We know that our Father is causing all things to work together for our good and His glory. God says very very clearly in texts like Isaiah 45 verse 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. 
I don't know about you, but that's, that, that comforts me greatly to know this truth. Romans 8, 28 and 29, you're very familiar with it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And that's the good the scripture is talking about. It, it doesn't say all things are good. Okay. Death is not good. Okay. De- death is an interruption to the God's original plan when he created uh, Eden and the initial paradise with the man and the woman. Death's an intruder. But for the Christian, death works for good because of where we arrive after. And we could go on and on with illustrations like that. But those he foreknew, and that gets back to our Ephesians 1 sermon text, those he called from, from the foundation of the, of the world, those he foreknew, he predestined, predestined. We saw that word in Ephesians 1. Now, everybody's got to deal with predestination. Everybody. Every Christian's got to deal with that. Every Christian's got to deal with the doctrine of election. And I'm thankful for the way our Reformed forefathers have biblically dealt with it and passed it on to us. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, the absolute sovereignty of God in all things is at the very heart of the Reformed faith. And this gives us comfort, and this gives us peace, and this gives us stability. As John Calvin wrote, it is a blessed thing to be subject to the sovereignty of God. And beloved, it really is. It really is. Those aren't just words. It really is a blessed thing. Now, with regard to what we're celebrating today, let's, let's do a brief history. I do this every year. So if you're a longtime church member, this is the point where you can, that you can take a brief nap because you've heard this many, many times. Some of you can probably even say it with me. But if you're visiting with us this morning and are not familiar with what I'm talking about, allow me to briefly give you my introductory, hugely, sim- hugely simplified history lesson. And again, most of you are familiar with this account because I do this pretty much every year. But the, for the sake of our guests and for the sake of our newer members and and those that are in our our, uh, uh, current new members class, here we go. In the 16th century, because of financial difficulties due to the massive expenses incurred in the building and beautifying of St. Peter's Basilica, the Roman Catholic Church, which was the church at the time, okay, the only church, the Roman Catholic Church under Pope Leo began a widespread sale of indulgences, which promised complete forgiveness of past and future sins, even complete forgiveness for relatives that had already gone on, that had already died. In other words, pay money to the church, get forgiveness. It was a financial transaction. Pay money, get forgiveness. Now, this riled up an insignificant German monk named Martin Luther. And on October 31st, 
1517, 500 years ago today, he posted on the church door at Wittenberg a list of statements that is known as the 95 Theses. In his reading and in his study of the Bible, he had come to see that the Roman Catholic Church had begun to deviate from the teaching of Scripture, especially regarding how one is forgiven, uh, the sale of indulgences, which is not mentioned in the Bible, uh, other doctrines like purgatory, uh, the power of the Pope, uh, and how one is justified before God. Authority in the church, Luther was beginning to see, no longer residing, it resided in Scripture alone, or sola scriptura, but in extra-biblical edicts and papal announcements or council decisions. So, Luther posted his theses or ideas with an invitation to church leaders to discuss the need to return to the authority of Scripture alone. His goal was not division. In fact, he wrote his theses in Latin, so only the theologians could read them. The common person could not even read them. Uh, so his goal was not division, but the removal of extra-biblical or anti-biblical teachings that were leading the flock of God astray. Here's how he began his thesis. Here's the preface. Out of love for the truth and the desire to bring it to light, the following propositions will be discussed at Wittenberg under the oversight of the Reverend, Reverend Father Martin Luther, Master of Arts and of Sacred Theology and lecturer on these subjects at Wittenberg. Wherefore, he requ requests that those who are unable to be present and debate orally with us may do so by letter. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Okay? So he just wanted a discussion. He wanted to basically have a Bible study about where is the true authority in the church? And how is forgiveness received? Do you really, does paying money for it work? Uh, so again, there was no thought Luther had no idea where this would go. Despite his intentions, Luther was proclaimed a heretic by the Catholic Church and was called to recant his writings and teachings that opposed official church dogma. And in 1521, four years after the posting of the theses, he gave his famous statement at a history-changing meeting uh, the Diet of Verps at, and the Reformation die was cast. On that day, he said this. After being given a day to think about it, he reported, uh, was fairly flustered on the first day. They graciously gave him a day to think about it, went back to his place, prayed pretty much all night, and came back with courage and with strength and said this, unless I'm convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I will not recant. 
My conscience is held captive by the word of God. And to act against conscience is neither safe nor right. Here I stand. I can do no other. So here we are today. Protestants, heirs of that historical event. We must not forget our heritage, as so many have. Ask, ask the, uh, the man on the street about the Reformation, and most of them will not have a clue about what it was or the basic issues involved. And that's true even in the church. The fact that the largest Protestant denomination in the country, Southern Baptist Convention, has a minority subgroup called the Founders trying to bring it back to its founding principles speaks volumes. The American church has drastically strayed from its Reformation roots. So we must beg God to give us consciences that are in captivity to his life-giving, sanctifying word. We must never forget where we came from, and we must be thankful to God for his restoration of the true gospel through flawed saints like Martin Luther. And he was flawed. And, and critics of the Reformation, just be ready for it. If you do an internet search, critics of the Reformation will point to Luther's human flaws and completely dodge the biblical issues. Okay, they'll, they'll do an ad hominem attack on a man and completely ignore the biblical issues that the man brought up. And that's intentional. And that's pretty much the way society works, even today, right? On, on all other issues, political, whatever. You know, they attack the person rather than dealing with the truth or the issue. So anyway, I digress. Let's do a brief review of the solas. As you know, if you've been with us this month, every, every Sunday, one, uh, one of our elders has brought you a brief uh, sermonette on uh, one of the solas, okay? And uh, coming, coming out of the Reformation were these five key phrases, uh, my fellow elders have done a beautiful job of expounding on the first four of these uh, the past four Sundays. And man, I am, as I was telling the uh, membership class today, I am so thankful uh, for my fellow elders. Uh, and as we have said, these were the foundational principles of this biblical movement that, that we call the Reformation. But, but listen, they were and are, still are, much more than that. They're much more than that. And I believe we could rightly say that they represent the bedrock theological convictions about the essentials of Christianity and how lost sinners are made right with God. In other words, what I'm trying to say is this. The solas are, are absolutely central to the doctrine of salvation and to the Christian faith, to biblical faith, to what true faith really is. So these are, here's what, I want, here's what I'm trying to say. These are more 
than just Protestant beliefs. Let's be very clear about that. They are biblical truths. They are the lifeblood of the entire biblical message with the primary design being to humble man and to exalt God. Not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory, as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 115, verse 1. So let's review them real quick. Let's get the whole package today. And please know, please know this. Let me say this, hurriedly say this. I'm not improving on what my brother elders have already said. I just thought it would be good on Reformation Sunday, 2021, to give you the whole package together, okay, and to see how they are connected because they are much, much, much more than a simple list. They represent a beautiful web of interconnected doctrines displaying the goodness and the glory and the grace of our great God, okay? So let's begin. I'm not going to go in the order we did them in the, uh, in the, on the calendar, but uh, let's start with what I think is kind of the basic, sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, okay? Scripture alone is our final and ultimate authority. I mean, why do we believe in sola fide and sola gratia? Because of sola scriptura. Scripture is the basis. It's our, it's, it's the, it's, it's our final, bottom line, ultimate authority because it's the sole source of divine revelation. There is no other divine revelation. There is no other revelation from God. This is it alone, Scripture alone. It's the breath of God, the only place where we hear the voice of God. We gather to hear it read and preached. And that's one of the main reasons why it's our intention as your elders to never, never shut down again, no matter what. Now, providentially, you got to do what you got to do and what's best for you and your health. But we, we're not shutting down again. We are called to gather to hear the word read and preached. We answer ultimately to the Bible and not to popes and not to councils or even not to elder boards. We pray that our elder boards will be submissive to the Bible so that we can be rightly submissive to them. As Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. What's Paul saying there? Well, if I ever quit following Christ, you can quit following me. And that's your elder's heartbeat, okay? The Bible is the final say because it's the one and only word of God. It reveals who God is in his holiness, who man is as a fallen sinner, totally depraved and in need of salvation, how God saves sinful people, depraved people, through the work of his son Jesus Christ, and how we are to live after being saved. Sola Scriptura. Secondly, we talked about sola gratia. A person is saved by grace alone. Grace alone. We do not add any work. To our salvation, this humbles us. The only thing we bring to the transaction of salvation is our sin. And when God, by His grace alone, through the effectual call of His Spirit, regenerates us, our sin is washed, 
in the blood of his son Jesus, and we are born again, given new life. This is a what theologians call a monergistic act of God. This is God acting alone on our dead hearts. We add nothing. We bring nothing to it. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. Romans 3.24 and many others make this clear. We are justified by his grace as a gift, as a gift, not anything earned or merited or worked for. Thirdly, we see sola, we saw sola fide, faith alone. Faith is the sole instrument through which a person is saved. And even the faith with which we believe is a gift, is a gift. Because salvation, why? Why must it be a gift? Because salvation is by grace alone. See the connection? See how these are all connected? Not just a list, a web, a web of interconnected doctrines that point to the beauty and wonder of God. And how do we know this truth? Because of the principle of Scripture alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Grace is the point to the gift, the unmerited favor. Faith is the instrument through faith. And this, this, this points back to faith. This faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You know, people talk about how... How difficult and how, you know, brainiac, you know, how, how you got to be a brainiac to understand reform. Really? No, you no, no, no. I mean, and this is not your, how clear can that be? I mean, it's, it's fairly clear. But why do people bucket? Why do people bucket? Because they believe that there's got to be something I got to do. They're, they're, human pride, Bucks, there's got to be something I got to do. There's got to be something that I can cling to that said this, that, that 1%, you know. No, no, Bible doesn't teach that at all. Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You just got to receive it. Just got to receive it. With the new heart that God gives you when he grants you faith to believe in Jesus. So beautiful. God is so good. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Only, only, underline it, only the work of Jesus in his perfect life and atoning death saves us. There is no, as famous, very, very, very famous uh, evangelist will tell you, there is no 99%, 1% scenario. It's not that God has done 99% and you've got to do the last 1%. No, 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 that can't be because if you're not saved without the 1%, then what happens? The 1% in reality becomes 
And you wind up having to save yourself. You've got to add that last piece of the puzzle to complete the salvation. Your salvation, the Bible does not teach that. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Jesus did it all. We are saved by Christ alone. So in this sense, we are saved by works. But it's the works of someone else. It's not our works. It's the works of Jesus. Jesus alone. His works alone. Every member of this church confesses that when they take their membership vows. Remember this? Uh, Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the one and only Son of God who came in the flesh? And are you resting upon Him and Him alone in His life, perfect life, death, atoning death that purchased forgiveness, resurrection, proving He was who He said He was, and ascension, His rule and reign over all things for your salvation? And we all said, yes. Yes, we believe in solus Christus. Listen, dear friend, listen, listen. If you, in any way, if in any way, any way, even in the slightest way, are trusting in something else for your salvation, a dark shadow is cast upon your redemption. And there is a strong possibility that you are not saved. If you add obedience to any part of the law, to complete your salvation, you then have to keep the whole law in thought, word, and deed to be saved. And good luck with that. Paul said in Galatians 5, 2, remember when the Judaizers came to the church at Galatia and tried to uh, wreck the gospel, tried to put a monkey wrench in the gospel, saying, oh, yeah, yeah, it's good that you believe in Jesus, but guess what? You also got to be circumcised to complete your salvation. And Paul came back and said in Galatians 5, 2, look, look. He gets there. He's getting there. Look, look, listen, look. I, Paul, say to you, I, Paul, I, Paul, the apostle, say to you that if you accept circumcision, And for our modern-day times, throw anything else in there. Substitute anything else for circumcision. Church membership, baptism, your decision, your brief trek down an aisle, your repeated prayer that your parents led you in. If you accept any of those things, but in this case it was circumcision, if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. (laughs) It doesn't take a rocket science to understand what what he's saying there. If you think you've got to add something to it, then forget Christ alone. Forget it. Christ is no advantage to you. He hasn't saved you. Translated, you won't be saved if you think you have to add anything to what Jesus has done. And Titus 3 makes it very clear, starting at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul, you could have just said, and we were depraved, okay? But he gives all those details. 
And they all ring a bell with us. One or more ring a bell with us when we think about our past. But, beautiful conjunction of contrast. But, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Listen, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Grace alone, according to grace alone, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So because of Christ alone, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And today we come to Sola Deo Gloria. Sola Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. The capstone phrase of the other four. The glue that holds all five together. The summary of all of life. The summary of our confession of faith. And the summary, pretty much, of the Bible. All things ultimately point to the glory of of God alone. God does all things for his glory. We are to do all things for God's glory. That's why we, cre- we were created. Let me just give you a sampling of verses. And gosh, this list could have been tremendously long. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Peter 4.11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow. In the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. And Romans 11, 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. If you've ever ever read through Ezekiel, toward the end of Ezekiel, God says something to this effect. I wish I'd have written this one down, but he says, it's not, he's talking to the people of Israel. He said, it's not for your sake that I'm going to move, but for the sake of my name. It's not for your glory that I'm going to do all these things that I'm telling you that I'm going to do. It's for the sake of my glory. God does all things for his glory. One famous, uh, well-known Bible teacher several years ago said, with God, it's all about us. Sorry, I beg to differ. With God, it's all about God. Okay? John Calvin said, quote, we never truly glory in him until we have utterly discarded our own glory. The elect are justified by the Lord in order that they may glory in him and in none else. So, All five of these phrases are connected to the dilemma that man was born into. 
The problem of the impending judgment of God dwarfs any other problem a human being may face. And we all face problems. We've all got problematic issues. But if you're here today without Christ as your Lord, you've got a much bigger problem facing you down the road. You will stand before the judgment of God. And that's a much bigger problem than any problem you may face on this planet. We were all spiritually stillborn. We were spiritually dead from birth, dead in sin. But God, in his infinite love for his people, makes us spiritually alive. Our new birth is by grace alone, through the gift of faith alone, because of and paid for by the work of Christ alone. This gracious and wonderful work is for the glory of God alone and results in the believer living in submission to Scripture alone. See how, how they all go together? They all go together so, so perfectly. To say it another way, and there are many, many ways to say it. And we could never say them all. Let me give you one more way. There has to be the power of God in the person of the Holy Spirit working in you, applying the work of Christ alone to your formerly dead heart. This regenerating work is a gift of God's grace alone. You receive this gift by faith alone, which according to Scripture alone is itself a gift. And when you are born again, you grow consistently in a lifestyle of living for the glory of God alone. What a plan. What a gracious God. So my question for you today on this Reformation Sunday 2021 is, are you saved? Are you saved? Let me ask it another way. Is the glory of God the goal of your life? If not, then today's the day of salvation. If the glory of God is not the goal of your life, then you're not saved. But the good news is, that's the bad news, but the good news is, Today, you can be. Today's the day. Now, let's continue just a brief pondering of this fifth sola, okay, this sola deo gloria. I want to look at it from two standpoints. I want to look at it from the standpoint of our election, okay, and from the uh, a second standpoint, uh, the standpoint of the Trinity, okay? So, sola deo gloria and our election, Remember where we left off uh, last week in our study of uh, 2 Peter, okay? 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, remember the seven qualities we saw in verses 5 through 7, you will never fall. Now, we're going to come back to that next month, okay? And do a, 
a brief study on assurance. How, how, do, what is it, how do we confirm our election? How can we be sure? And we're going to talk about the assurance of our salvation as we lead into Thanksgiving. But today I want to make the connection between our election, or to say it another way, God's choosing and calling of us, same thing, and sola deo gloria, okay? Now, we've already seen it in our sermon text, right? We, we've already seen it. Uh, verse 4, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, uh, verse 5, he predestined us, okay? That's election. Um, verse 6, uh, and why did he choose and predestine us? Verse, to the praise of his glorious grace. See the connection? We're chosen. He's, we're of the elect to be for the praise of God's glory. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. Why? Verse 12, so that, purpose clause. We might be to the praise of his glory. See the connection? Election is directly connected to sola deo gloria. Verse 14. The, we are, or 13 and 14, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Why? To the praise of his glory. So election is very much connected to living for the glory of God. Let's get an Old Testament picture of this. In Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you, called you, chosen you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Uh, probably referring to the Exodus uh, and through the rivers. There's the crossing of the Jordan. They shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, maybe we think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You will not be burned, and the flame will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom. A lot, a lot, of, a lot, of, a lot of Egyptians had to die to rescue Israel from the clutches of Pharaoh. Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. We get this picture of God calling people from all corners of the globe to himself. I will say to the north, give up. To the south, do not withhold. So east, west, north, south, from the four corners of the earth, God is calling people to himself. Okay, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, watch this, whom I created. There it is, for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bottom line, God chose us. 
God called his people so that we would live for his glory. He chose us to glorify himself. Every one of his people are to be for the praise of his glory. The elect are to live sola deo gloria. In fact, it's a proof and evidence of your election. So when Peter tells us to make our calling and election sure, what's one way to do that? Ask yourself, is my goal for my life the glory of God? There you go. There you go. At its foundation, the Christian life is a life of glorifying God. Jonathan Edwards wrote this, from time to time in Scripture... Embracing and practicing true religion and repenting of sin and turning to holiness is expressed by glorifying God, get this, as though that were the sum and end of the whole matter. The sum and end of the whole matter of being a Christian of living the Christian life is glorifying God. The Christian life, dear friends, at its heart and at its foundation is a life of glorifying God. So in answering the question, what is a Christian? An acceptable and very legitimate answer would be a Christian is a person who lives to glorify God. Of course, there are many other acceptable answers. A Christian is someone who has repented of his or her sin and is trusting Jesus alone for salvation. A Christian is someone who has received the gift of forgiveness. A Christian is someone who's been born again by the Spirit of God. A Christian is a person who has been justified and is being sanctified and will one day be glorified. A Christian is someone who's becoming more and more like Jesus Christ day by day by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And there are others. You could add to that list. There are many other ways to answer the question, what is a Christian? And of course, they're all connected. But the point I want to make this morning on this Reformation Sunday, when our focus is on sola deo gloria, is this. If you are not striving to glorify God, you're not striving to live a life that honors your creator. If that is not the driving motivation of your life, then you are not a Christian. Because a Christian is someone whom God has chosen to glorify him. Please understand this. Please hear this. It really is as simple as that. It really isn't rocket science. If you were counting on a prayer that you mouthed many years ago, even if your parents led you in it, along with some warped view of once saved, always saved, or if you're relying on the fact that you've been baptized or you've joined a church or whatever past action you may be counting on, And there is no desire to live for the glory of God in the present. 
in the present. The Bible always confirms our salvation in the present. Have you ever noticed that? The Bible never points to a past act to confirm our salvation. What, what we just studied. Peter gives this list of qualities. And he's speaking in the present. If these things are in your life now, in the present, now, then you, will, you can make your calling and election sure. It ne- the Bible never points to a past action to give us assurance. It's now. How are we living now? What are you doing now? It doesn't mean you weren't saved in the past. Every person that's here today that's saved was saved in the past. But the proof of that, the evidence of that, the, what, the things that give us assurance is happening now. Are you with me? You got that? I, I pray that you do. That is so, so vital. So, if there's no desire to live for the glory of God in the present, you are deceiving yourself. And you will be a part of the crowd who hears Jesus say at the judgment, depart from me, I never knew you. Saddest words of the Bible. People live their whole life thinking they're in. And they're not in. Please don't let that be you. Please. I believe the Bible clearly and unambiguously teaches this without any confusion. Secondly, real quick, solo deo glory and the Trinity. Solo deo glory and the Trinity. This is really cool. Every member of the Trinity is involved in this. Let's start with the perspective of God the Father. From our sermon text, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, we saw that a Christian is someone who has been chosen by the Father from the foundation of the world. And the reason the Father chooses us is so that we will glorify Him. It's so clear that we're to be to the praise of His glory. So if you're a Christian, it's because God has chosen you from the foundation of the world, from before the foundation of the world. And the reason he chose you was so that you would glorify him. And God's purpose is not thwarted. Job said that. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. And God, in other words, God does what he plans. And he planned, listen, he planned that you would be saved and transformed and live for the glory of God. Therefore, all who are chosen live to glorify the one who chose them. There's no getting around it. God does what he planned. He chose you to glorify him. So when you're glorifying him, you are proving, you are demonstrating that you've been chosen. Secondly, let's look at it from the perspective of the Holy Spirit. A Christian, according to Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, a Christian is someone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Paul said. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, 
anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So, Another definition of a Christian. What's a a Christian? A Christian is someone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, put that together with what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus say about the Holy Spirit in John 16, 14? He, speaking of the Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In other words, if the Holy Spirit's ministry is to glorify Christ, who is God, and the Holy Spirit lives in you, then he will be leading you to live for the glory of God. Not rocket science. It's so beautiful and simple. And finally, we see it from the perspective of God the Son. So we've got every member of the Trinity covered in this matter of living for the glory of God. According to Romans 10, 9, Okay, what's a Christian? What's a Christian? According to Romans 10, 9, a Christian is someone who has confessed Jesus as Lord. If you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, so a Christian is someone who confesses, agrees that Jesus is their master. Okay? And therefore has a controlling desire to obey him and please him. Well, what did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 16? <laughs> Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father in heaven. There you go. In other words, the Lord Jesus, whom we've confessed as our Lord, commands us to live in a way that will glorify God. So, if you're a Christian, Jesus is your Lord. You want to obey him. You want to please him. And he has commanded you to live in a way that glorifies the Father. In other words, Jesus has commanded us to live sola Deo Gloria. And as a child of God and a follower of Jesus, we want to do that. It's our joy to do that. It's our delight to do that. And so we will strive to do that. Not perfectly. Not perfectly. Not on this planet ever. But in an ever-growing way. So beloved, beloved, listen, there's, there's just, are, do, you, do you believe in solo scriptura? Is scripture your authority? I mean, there's just no denying it. A Christian is a person who has been chosen by God the Father and indwelt by God the Spirit and commanded by the Son of God to live for the glory of God. So are you? Are you? Every member of the Trinity has called you, enabled you, and commanded you to do that. God has, the Father has called you to do it. God the Spirit is enabling you to do it, giving you the power to do it. And God the Son is commanding you to do it because he knows you've got the power to do it. 
and that you've been called to do it. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, whatever, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So are you? Are you striving to live? Again, key word, striving. We're not talking perfection. We all fall short here and, here and there in, in glorifying God. But is, is, is that our heart? Is that our goal? Is that our desire? Are you striving for that? Are you striving to live for the glory of God? If not, here's the sad truth. Not only are you not a Christian, you're wasting your life because the Bible says you were created. You were created, not just saved. You were created to live for the glory of God. So let's just admit it. Let's wrap it up and admit something. No sermon can ever capture the wonder and depth and magnificence of the subject of the glory of God. It's a pipe dream. No book, no matter how thick, no matter how big, can capture the wonder of this subject. But as David Van Drunen states in his little book, The Glory of God, it is well worth the effort to reflect anew on this life-changing idea that animated the Reformation and has inspired countless believers ever since. Truly, glory to God alone is the majestic heart of the Christian faith and life. And beloved, dear family, dear church family, I pray that Solideo Gloria will be the heart of our church family and the heart of each and every individual member. I pray that it will be the heart of all of our children and all of our grandchildren because that's the only way to number your days properly. It's the only way to make your days count. I pray we will reflect that heart to this community and to a world that for the most part is saying glory to me alone. Van Drunen continues, and I'll end with this. May God glorify himself in all of his works. May our thoughts and worship revel in the glory of the living God, even in the midst of an age of distraction and narcissism. And may we, the undeserving but ever-blessed beneficiaries of such a great salvation, live for his glory now as we wait for the dawning of that day when he glorifies us together with his Son. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Let's pray. Happy Reformation Day. Father, we long to glorify you with our lives, both individually and corporately as your church. Please help us, strengthen us, empower us, embolden us, grow us. For apart from you, we can't do it. Apart from you, actually, we can do nothing that honors you. 
So pour out your grace upon us. And may our heartbeat and lifeblood and cry of our collective and united hearts be sola Deo Gloria. And that's our prayer, Father. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.